Gentlemen, if it were up to me, the conference would be over. <laughs> Not because I have to speak, but because um, it's been a really full weekend. And, man, the stuff that's, that we all have been exposed to. Knock your socks off. And, um, Ray, thank you. Thank all you guys, Dustin, Joel, all you guys that have, that have been up here. I've really done a superlative job. Um, unfortunately, I do have to finish this thing. I'll do my level best to do it and um, try to do it in a way that doesn't embarrass either me or the Lord. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for how your word has been so powerfully spoken this weekend. Thank you, Lord, for the men that you've anointed for that task. Help us, Lord, to finish the course this morning and to be mindful of what you have to say to us. Lord, we long to be changed. We are men of flesh, lustful men, and we long to be holy and clean like you are. So Lord, we commit the time to you and ask that you would do for us what only you can do. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we're in the part of this talk where we're going to go through man, history, and nature. And we started to talk about man, and we talked about, um, with the scientific advances, where we are headed is to something that is called transhumanism. And transhumanism, as, as I indicated, is this integration of machine with man. And it's an attempt to really supplant God as creator. It is an attempt on the part of the human race to become creator ourselves and, and to recreate the human race in our image, not in God's. So that's what, what that enterprise is about. And we perceive ourselves to be masters of our own destiny. And um, in all of this enterprise, nobody is talking about our soul. Let us say we allow our bodies to live forever. But what about the development of the soul? And gentlemen, if, if you are not regularly thinking about and talking about your soul and the, <clears throat> and the soul of others, your, your, your value system, your worldview, your understanding is terribly warped. Because as has been indicated by more than one guy who stood up here this weekend, there's two eternal things. The souls of people and the Word of God. And the object of the game is to put those two things together, both in your life and in the lives that God puts in front of you. The integration of the Word with your soul is why you're here. Now that comes about in a lot of ways. I forgot my key here, so I'm going to put it right there. Somebody, Chris, right there it is. <laughs> Responsibility, hands washed. <laughs> So, <clears throat> man, the truth of the matter, of course, biblically speaking, is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And Bryce talked last evening about pain. And certainly pain is a powerful way that God gets our attention. 
and I think he alluded to this, and I agree with him. I think without pain, we all go to hell. I'm pretty sure that's true of me. I hate pain, but I need it. God help me, I wish it weren't so, but I do. But let me suggest that in addition to pain, and, and maybe these are kind of pain from a different angle, God does something else. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3.11. Speaking of God, He has made everything appropriate, or your translation might say beautiful. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. God sets eternity in the heart of each of us. And what that does, men, is it creates a longing. A longing to be rightly related to Him. And That longing is not pleasant. It hurts. You may experience it as a hole or a vacuum. Augustine called it a God-shaped vacuum. But something's not right. And so God uses that to draw people to himself. I want to suggest he uses something else that is somewhat similar. But this something is related to sin. When our first parents fell in the garden, God goes looking for them. And he says, Adam, where are you? Well, God knew where he was. He wasn't asking for information. He was asking because he wanted Adam and Adam to think. And Adam said, Well, God, I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid myself. Gentlemen, I I, I can't be sure. I've never I haven't interviewed the entire, <clears throat> the entire human race. But as I've talked with men, they seem to resonate with what I'm about to say. And even if it's not true of you, it's true of me. My sense is that God imprinted something on us when we sinned. And something specifically in men. I don't know the degree to which this is present in women. It may be. I don't know. I don't understand women. I think I understand us. That nakedness of which Adam spoke was literal. But for us, it's a different thing. It's a metaphysical, not a physical thing. It is a metaphysical thing. And that medical, metaphysical thing is an inadequacy. We perceive correctly, that we don't have what it takes to be a man. That's true. I don't have what it takes to be a man. And that makes me afraid. That makes me afraid that you'll find out. And when you do, you'll reject me. So I hide just like Adam did, but again, not literally, but in metaphysical ways, in ways like the accumulation of wealth or consumption of alcohol or drugs, illicit sex, bluster and bravado, athletic achievement, and on and on and on all to prove to myself and to you 
that I really am a man. But all those things don't make me one. So, I want to come at this same thing from a little bit different angle. I love what Ray said this morning about fleeing immorality. That's, that's the only safe bet. Find out where it is and go the other way. But there's something else with respect to our, our manhood that has been largely expunged from us in, in our culture. I'm going to ask you to turn to Judges chapter 3. There, Judges chapter 3. So, I'm going to read the first two verses. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Now, catch this, verse 2. Only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. God left some of the pagan peoples so that Israel, the men, would learn to fight. They would learn to war. And Gemma, I suggest to you that whether or not you have been whether you've served in the military and have fought a war like that, you and I are in a war, and we have forgotten how to fight. Our warfare... Someone go to... Someone grab the mic. Go to 2 Corinthians 10 and read verses 3 through 6. Ken, do you have it there? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. I just want you to know you called me up here. <laughs> but that should be a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I earned that. Um, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That was true of the Apostle Paul. That is not true of us. We should be warring. He says every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Gentlemen, that is the culture in which you live. It is raised up against that which is of God, that which is in the Bible. And we have not, not only not resisted it, we have embraced it. We have brought it into the church to the point that we are embarrassed and ashamed of certain things in that Bible that we will not talk about with one another, let alone try to, to apply. Shame on us, that is on us as men. Gentlemen, every guy in this room knows how to read. The Bible doesn't use very big words. They're easy to understand. This culture is absolutely opposed to Jesus Christ and that book that he wrote. Defend it. War. You have to... Gentlemen, what is the first piece of the armor of God? Gird your loins with truth. That we don't know anymore. We've discarded the truth 
for a lie. Gird up your loins with truth and then put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's moral behavior. What Ray was talking about and others have been talking about. Men, you cannot afford not to be involved in this war. Because again, that war is going on and it is being waged against you. Whether you know it or not, it is happening. And we need the guts and the resolve to stand up and fight. And Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong, or maybe you can explain. Um, you're not talking, get out in the street corner and kind of uh, shout to the world how we've, maybe there's some things missed or that uh, we're interpreting incorrectly, but rather in rooms like this and in our churches with brothers, making sure we're staying towards the truth and letting that kind of just flow internally out. Yeah, Dan, how God calls each of you all individually, I don't know. For some, it may be standing on a street corner. But for sure, the, the, the last thing you said about looking our family in the eye and saying whether anybody else believes what that book says or not, we will. We're not going to compromise the Word of God, period. If that had been done started, starting in the 60s, different story. The same end point, it all ends with Jesus coming back and cleaning house. But remember, Dan, I have no idea if his return is imminent. But he says in Luke 18.8, however, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? That is not the story of the church triumphant. The church gets crushed. If, if I understand the book of Revelation, and that's a mighty big stretch, we lose until he comes back. Hmm. Am I prepared for that? Am I ready for the persecution that is coming? Am I helping my family to get ready for the persecution is, that is coming? Because if you're faithful to that book, you will be persecuted and worse. It's coming. Dale? I just wanted to, to point out the verse. You didn't read verse 4 in that passage <clears throat> out of Judges. I just read on a little bit, and I just wanted to add it to far be it for me to add to your teaching, but I think it's really important. Verse 4 says, the reason he did this, leaving those guys for this war, is in verse 4, for they, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. Yeah. So. Gentlemen, we, we talked earlier that what really sent the, the, the church in a tailspin was the one-night stands that we all sold out for. And let me suggest to you that that is not a new phenomenon. Both Jude and 2 Peter, it's Jude 11, and I think it's 2 Peter 2.15, talk about the sin of Balaam. You say, well, who's Balaam? Well, Balaam, you, you can read about him in Numbers, but Balaam was a prophet of God. And the Moabite king Balak went to Balaam and said, Balaam, would you please curse Israel for me? Because I really don't like those guys. They're coming through our, our property would you curse him? 
And God says to Balaam, nope, you can't do it. So Balaam doesn't do it. But Balak, the king, comes back to Balaam and he asks him again. And what Balaam then does after after being told by God that he cannot curse Israel is he tells Balak how to get God mad at Israel. And you know what the plan was? Tell Balak that all they have to do to get God mad at him is to go and cavort with the Moabite women. That's all they have to do. And that's exactly what Israel did. And sure enough, God got mad at him. Gentlemen, Jude warns us, 2 Peter 2 warns us, not to replicate the sin of Balaam. We have replicated the sin of Balaam. And we are paying hell for it because of what we've done. Man, I go back and listen again to what Ray said to us. Clean this up. Teach your sons. Teach your daughters. Clean this up. Questions? Now, gentlemen, let me, let me make another comment about, about warfare. It has to do with Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. You need to remember this. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And I want to add one more thing. In that same book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 3, it says of God, His works were finished from the foundation of the world. You understand the importance of that little partial verse? His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Everything that God is ever going to do is done. It's complete. Let me illustrate this through a very pedestrian example. I love college basketball. I'm a University of Arizona guy. We won a national championship in 1997 before half of you guys were born. It was, it was fun. You got to win six games. And um, I watched all of them. I watched them with the same group of guys. As I recall, because we were superstitious characters, we all sat in the same chair. <laughs> and um, I have to say, I did not enjoy any of the games. Why? Every missed free throw, every missed hoop, every missed defensive assignment, every missed call, we're screwed. It's all over. So we get to the, oh. (laughs) So the final game was against Kentucky. Goes into overtime. And, man, talk about not enjoying a game. That was yikes. But, so we finally win the thing. And I did something out of, the, out of character for me. I did something smart. And I recorded the games. And so now I get the Kentucky game out. And I stick it in to watch it. And every missed free throw, every missed shot, every missed def- defensive assignment, cares? Who cares? We got this. Right? We win. That's why Hebrews 4.3 is important. We win. Not just we collectively, but we individually. God has done works. And Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is your mission. That's the only safe place for you to be, is to walk in those works. That's it. That's why you're here. Find out what they are and start walking. A gentleman that is found by faith. It's not going to be, there's not going to be skywriting for it. It's done by faith. But he has already accomplished it. The victory is already certain. Be strong and courageous. Questions? Discussion? All right. I'm going to talk about nature for a minute. Nature is what science is all about. Science is the study of nature. It's all it is. And a lot can be learned from the study of nature. Now, you, not, you need to remember that in your study of nature, you are observing a fallen nature. So it's not completely reliable. Not only that, there's a danger in getting too obsessed with nature. And that danger, number one, is to view nature as permanent and man as transient when the opposite is true. You are immortal. You will outlive the sun, the earth, the moon, the stars. When they have gone out, you will be alive. This is all over the Bible. But in our culture, we have made or are in the process of making nature more important than people. And one manifestation of this is climate change and this obsession with climate change. So we, on the one hand, are committed to, climate, to the, the prevention of climate change. On the other hand, we're committed to abortion on demand. And these are expressions of this inversion of the truth that people are forever. And the environment, nature, is transient. And not only that, gentlemen, God assures us he will take care of the planet. Turn to Genesis chapter 8. Are there any Kleenexes around here? My nose is running like a faucet. Oh, thank you. So this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is Genesis 8, 21 and 22. This is after the flood. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now catch this. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, huh, climate change, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God has the climate. God has the environment. He's got it. Let him worry about it. You have much bigger fish to fry because you're involved with things that are permanent, that are eternal. Now, this obsession with nature presents another, another problem. And that is the problem of worshiping nature. 
I'm going to ask you, Ken, one more time because I know you like to be at that mic. And I'm hoping this will satiate that desire. You know, I consider it sin, so I'm cleaning out the back door. Okay? Yes, sir. Yes. What do you want? Deuteronomy. Chapter 4. Okay. Read verse 2. <clears throat> you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. Now how, stay there please, how much simpler a request can God make. He says, here's my commandments. Don't add to them and don't subtract from them. That's as crystal clear as a verse can be. Let me suggest that neither Israel nor the church has ever abided by it. Now, go on and read verse 6. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You understand what he's saying? He's saying morality precedes knowledge. Do you want to be wise? Do what I say and I will make you wise. But just do what I say. Don't add to and don't subtract from and then you'll become wise. Now, if you don't do that, if you add to or subtract from, you will not become wise. What will happen to you is verse 19 of that same chapter. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and, will, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people's under the whole heaven. What he's saying is, if you refuse to neither add to nor subtract from my commandments, then you will become an idolater. Now, gentlemen, the ancient pagans were, I guess what we might call literal idolaters in that they worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. They worshipped graven images. Our idolatry also comes from nature. And it comes in the form of ideas. See, you can't think in a vacuum. You think in this environment that God created. And again, this environment that he created is now fallen because of us. And we are seeking to learn from nature. The knowledge increase of our generation is because of an increase of knowledge about nature. But nature does not teach you more about spiritual and moral truths. Together? We are on the verge. You, you can sit now, Ken, if you like. We are on the verge of becoming outright pagans. The environmental movement, for example, has lots and lots of pagans in it. And let me remind you, men, that just before the return of Jesus, we will have reverted to outright paganism. It says in Revelation 9.20, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of the immorality, nor of their thefts. Gentlemen, our culture is secular. There's the definition up there. Secularism, this is, the, this is from the Oxford English Dictionary. Secularism is the doctrine 
that morality. Notice it is a moral doctrine. The doctrine that morality should be based solely on regard to the well-being of mankind in the present life to the exclusion, okay, this is the big one, to the exclusion of all considerations drawn from belief in God or in a future state, that is, heaven or hell. That is the morality of the culture in which you live, and it is that morality which has entered the church and is polluting her. Do you understand? See, what drives this? If, if we take out all considerations of God, heaven, and hell, on what basis is this morality being made? Reason in your dreams. It's being made on the basis of what I want, what I desire. And gentlemen, we... we congratulate ourselves for being rational beings. But rationality is nowhere near our strongest faculty. Our strongest faculty is desire. And if you doubt that, go to 1 Kings 11 and read about Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And he marries a thousand wives. And by the time the end of his life is approaching. He is in frank idolatry to every single one of those idols. That is the power that desire has over reason. He could not resist it, and neither can you and I. And our culture sure as heck can't resist it. Ken? I just, want, I just wanted to share the scripture with everyone because I find it amazing we go from Deuteronomy, and here we are in Revelations 22, 18. I test everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Amen. I'm going to move off of nature. Any other questions about that? Okay. Oh, yes, sir. Hey, can you address uh, the belief that uh, we are uh, to take care of the earth, and that is a stewardship claim, and people that would say that we have a responsibility to care about the environment for that perspective? Yeah, what does that look like? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it looks like the responsibility of man in the garden, making sure that things are the way they ought to be. And I, and I agree with you that in many cases we have better uh, places to fulfill it in our relationships with each other and with society that we need to mend, as you've been mentioning. Uh, but I, I, I wonder, is there a stewardship in nature also a responsibility? In the same way there's a stewardship for your car and your house. My brother, I want to remind you that in the, in the pagan nations that Israel drove out, God said of them, their immorality is such that the land will spit them out. That is over immorality, not an improper care of the earth. You understand? Yes. What is happening to us is that same immorality that those nations embraced is us, a post-Christian world. If we are spewed out of the land, it'll be over our immorality, not pollution. Thank you. Okay. Um, our moral gyroscope is secular. Our worldview 
is Marxist. Our, our view of history is Marxist. And this is all a bunch of made-up stuff by Marx. He said, he taught, that by definition, the past is dire. And therefore, we must endeavor to erase the past. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what's happening today? We've got to get rid of our current understanding of history or the traditional understanding of history. And we've got to erase all that stuff out of the past and create a new, a new paradigm. So that is, that is Marxist, that whole revisionist history stuff is about Karl Marx. Secondly, Marx attributed history to man. The Bible does not. History is the outplaying of the work of God. Whether you like how it's being, out, being played out or not really doesn't matter. It is his history. And we have embraced what I would call the myth of progress. And the myth of progress believes that all the work has to be done by us as men. And that when we cooperate, we will have a, an earthly utopia. And it is a lie. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that. There's a lot more that could be said. But in the interest of time, I think I'm not going to say any more. So let me, questions or comments? I know I did that kind of quick. But I don't want to get too deep into the weeds over it. You all understand history, right? No, you don't. <laughs> oh, here he comes. Yeah. Hey, this is on my dime, not his. Um, no, I just, am, uh, to your point, um, I heard that history books have been limited to what they're going to put in them now, and that the, the history goes up to the Vietnam War and stopping. And to your point, they're rewriting history. Gentlemen, there, you've all heard of critical race theory. Before critical race theory, there was critical theory. They all, it comes from the same, the same root. And the root is Marxist. And let me just back step a page. The postmodern world, the world in which you and I are a part, is a product of the thinking of, of, of Marxist people. And they understood that to get the revolution that they longed for, they had to destroy Western civilization and they had to destroy Christianity. And they were very, very explicit about what they were doing and why they were doing it. Basically, they believed that when, when ordinary people like us don't join the Marxist revolution, it's because we're too stupid to know where our best interests lie. And so they were going to educate us and teach us. And so it became an assault on reason. It became an assault on men. And gentlemen, we tell one another that there's a war on women, but that is not true. The war is on men. Women are lapping men in every field you can think of except the NFL and the NBA. 
and it is also a war on race. It is the pitting of whites against every other race. And gentlemen, if the Bible teaches one thing, it is that brotherhood of Christ has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. We are brothers in Christ because we share His blood. And we as a church have got to do a better job along those lines. We cannot allow the world to divide us over race and ethnicity. That is a victory for the enemy. We cannot allow it. Questions? All right, I'm going to shift gears now. And I want to talk about thinking. <clears throat> I want to start it in the following way. After justification, that is, after you meet Jesus Christ, the process that, if, that you are then engaged in is the process of sanctification. Now, it's been alluded to multiple times, but let me just do it one more time. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind means to change how you think. So the sanctification process is grounded. It begins in the changing of your thinking. And so thinking then, again, it's not that you have to be an intellectual. That's just nuts. The Bible is easy to understand. But you do have to think. And so I want to read this poem from T.S. Eliot because he's got a couple of things that are worth understanding about thought. Eliot was a believer. He wrote a lot of poems before he came to Christ, which the world applauds. The ones he wrote after he came to Christ, not so much. But this one is after he came to Jesus. <clears throat> he says the following. <clears throat> the eagle soars in the summit of heaven. The hunter with his dogs pursues his circuit. O perpetual revolution of configured stars, O perpetual recurrence of determined seasons, O world of spring and autumn, birth and dying, the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment, brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness, knowledge of speech, but not of silence, knowledge of words and ignorance of the word, all our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we've lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. I suggest, I'm not a critic of poetry by any stretch, but he's got a couple of thoughts that are really worth considering. Number one, he's warning us that our inability or unwillingness to be still, to be silent, to be alone before God is soul-destroying. You and I live in an age in which the velocity is killing us. How many hours in a day do you get to be alone with the Lord Jesus? Just, just the two of you. How much do you have of that? And Eliot says that's killing us. Because that velocity chokes out thought. But he makes a second point. 
And that is that information is not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. By itself, the Bible is information. By itself, the internet is information. Now, there's one very, very big difference. There's more than one, but the one I want to talk about. All of the information in the Bible is true. That is not true of the internet. And so when you're on the internet, you have one huge task right from the get-go. And that's deciding what's true and what's false. And that is not easy. The Bible, it's all true. So with respect to the information piece, you've got this one undiluted source of truth. Now, information isn't knowledge. For information to become knowledge, it has to be constructed. That is, you have to take individual pieces of information and connect them in the proper way. You have to construct knowledge. Information, you simply receive. But knowledge has to be constructed. That connection is thinking. That's what you're doing when you think. You're taking pieces of information and you are connecting them. That's one of the values of Scripture memory. The Holy Spirit of God takes the thought that you stuck in your brain 20 years ago and He connects it with, <clears throat> with another thought that you never in a million years would have thought and He connects it and you go, holy moly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So, you have to be alone and you have to take information and assemble it. Now it becomes knowledge. But knowledge isn't wisdom. For knowledge to become wisdom, you have to do two things. You have to apply it, and you have to make it part of your own soul. You have to allow the Spirit of God to integrate that knowledge into your soul. That's how the Word of God gets in you. As you meditate on it, as you do it, as you do what it says, and I would add one more thing, as you give it away. Gentlemen, God does, not re <clears throat> God does not reveal things to you so that you can feel smart. He gives things to you so that you can apply them and give them away. And every time you learn something new, you ought to be thinking those two things. How can I apply this? How can I give this away? Questions or comments about that? Okay. Now, <clears throat> as you're doing your Bible study, as you are gleaning information out of the Bible and you're in the process of making it knowledge and wisdom, there's a couple areas that are especially fertile for further inquiry. One is passages you don't understand. And passages that appear contradictory to one another. For example, you may think the fear of God and the love of God are contradictory. Or you may think that the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are contradictory. Those passages that you just don't understand. Those are worth considering to think about. Men, when I 
fell into the hands of this group of hooligans that I'm part of now, one of the things that impressed me was the ability of, and, and the willingness of some of these guys to take a thought and stick with it, to think about it for a day, for a week, for a year, just turning it over, not necessarily constantly, but sticking with something. You know, I don't, I don't get that. I need to think some more on that. You need, you need to develop that habit yourself. But there's a second fertile area, and that is the passages that annoy you or anger you. Because you've stumbled onto something important. It's something that you're wrong about, and you have a vested interest in it because it annoys or angers you. And you need to find out why do I have a vested interest in this? Why does this make me so mad? And then believe what the Bible says, not what you believe, not what your church believes, not what anybody believes, but what that book says. Those areas are where the gold is. Questions about that? Gentlemen, there's an insinuation in our culture that God is not good. See, that's, what, that's what's driving all of this stuff. See, when I, when I look back at history and I say, man, that's wrong. I might be right that that's, that's wrong in my moral compass. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I cannot go the step further and say that should never have been. Why? Because it's God's history, gentlemen. He orchestrates it all. And men, you have to understand the handicap system of God. God does not judge us all equally. He judges you according to the hand you have. Some guys get aces and kings. Some guys get deuces and trays. It's not the quality of your hand. That's determined by God. It's how you play it. So if you've got aces and kings, man, you better take a lot of tricks. In fact, you better not lose any tricks. You better hit a home run every time. If you got deuces and trays, like say for example, Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot had one card. She sees the nation of Israel come and says, I want to be part of that. And God says, that's a bingo. I put you in the Hall of Fame. Every advantage that you have on earth is a potential handicap in heaven and vice versa. There will be a lot of great people in heaven that nobody knows anything about. Gentlemen, acquire a heart of wisdom. Get to know Jesus Christ. Learn how to walk with Him. And God takes care of everything else. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Gentlemen, that, that is a true or a false statement. If it is true, we got our marching orders, right? And men, we talked about the need for warfare, learning how to fight. We talked about not fearing men, 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We talked about all the events of history at the global level, at the individual level, already written. <clears throat> the victory is ours. Let me close with one more passage. And it's out of Revelation chapter 21. And it's verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. This is Jesus talking. Then he, Jesus, said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of, of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes, oh, hope this is, this is you and me. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now listen to verse 8. But to the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Gentlemen, that is a rogues gallery of sinners. But the first two guys who make the list are the cowards and unbelievers. You can't afford either. You cannot afford either. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to be with you. May God grant us victory. May God give us the courage to be the men we know we ought to be, for Christ's sake. Amen.